We are speaking on the rapture of the church again this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them and to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. So last week we spent our time establishing the doctrine of the rapture, that uh, it is a reality, uh, that the reality of the doctrine itself, and with that, the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. So this lays the foundation for uh, the essence of what we understand about the rapture, that the Lord's return is imminent, um, that the rapture is something that is going to happen. And over the next two weeks, this week and next week, we're going to finish our understanding. This week will be the most um, focused week on uh, expressing and defending why we believe what we believe. And then next week, as we speak on some other elements of um, or some other viewpoints, we're going to talk about a, the, the post-tribulation rapture idea, a mid-tribulation rapture idea, a pre-wrath rapture idea, and then we'll, we'll introduce a few of, of the ones that are completely outside of our interpretation of Scripture, namely kind of the amillennial preterist idea. We'll, we'll give them lip service at least. As we talk through those, I'm going to be giving you more insights into why we disagree and where we're coming from with some of the major passages that other viewpoints use to establish their understanding of the rapture. But this week we, we focus in primarily on the pre-tribulation rapture itself. The essence of the pre-tribulation rapture position is that the church will be taken out of the world prior to any of the events that comprise the 70th week of Daniel as we spoke about it in Daniel 9. And if you recall at the beginning of our series, we walked through Daniel 9, 27 and following, talked through those 70 weeks, what those 70 weeks represented, and what they meant particularly as it relates to the world and to Israel. And really, the, the, the core, the essence of our understanding as, as a pre-tribulation rapture position uh, stands is the ideas of dispensationalism, imminence, and particularly the 70th week of Daniel. The fact that within the scope of the 70th week of Daniel, it is right after the first 69 weeks. The first 69 weeks are dealing exclusively with Israel, God's program with Israel. They have to do with, with uh, they, they exist before the church even existed within our understanding. Thank you, Alethea. Within our understanding and interpretation. And because of this, we hearken back to Daniel 9, which is one of the most clarifying passages of, as far as the timetable is concerned in the scriptures regarding end times events. And that, that is really where we hang our hat. So Daniel 9, as we recall, is a presentation of the 70 weeks, which, if interpreted through the lens of history as we know it, and revelation as we understand it, gives us a period of 490 years within which God finishes His program with Israel. God finishes His program with Israel. And we remark directly that the 69th week, according to Daniel 9, the 69th week, after the 69th week, Messiah is cut off. We know when Messiah was cut off, right? We understand when Messiah is cut off. Messiah is cut off when Messiah is crucified. That is him being cut off. So we know that the Messianic cut off is the end of the 69th week. Well, that leaves us with just one week left. When Jesus was teaching in Matthew 24, Jesus taught that, that that one week, that the abomination of desolation, the 70th week of Daniel, was yet to take place. 
And so we know that the 70th week had not taken place as of Jesus' teaching. Now, of course, depending on who you talk to, different interpretations. Some believe that that 70th week somehow took place before 70 A.D., but I believe that that's pretty far outside of the mainstream understanding of the Word of God. And to this point in history, we have yet to see circumstances that align with the 70th week of Daniel. So then we understand that there is a gap. There's a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. And so far, that gap has gone from Jesus' crucifixion to today, until such time as God's program recommences. And within this gap, we have the church. The fact that the church began after the 69th week gives us perspective as to how the church relates to the 70th week. We know that the church was not announced in the Old Testament. We do not see the church mentioned within the scope of prophecies regarding end times events. And all of this plays a role in where we believe the rapture falls within the scope of the end of days. Now, it's important for us to understand, however, that when it comes to the timing of the rapture, and I've said this several times, the Bible does not tell us when it's going to happen. We are piecing together statements, and regardless of which view anyone follows, we are piecing together statements, principles, and doctrines to discern when the church will be taken. That the church will be taken, I believe, is quite clear. That's what we spent time last week talking about, right? That the church will be taken is quite clear, but when the church is taken is something different altogether. To this end, I'll state as I've already said in various ways, and I'll likely say again, the timing of the rapture is not the element of utmost concern in and of itself. There is enough ambiguity in the text that the fundamental elements of the timing itself are left somewhat in doubt, regardless of which timing you believe uh, is best or is right. But that being said, why is it then, if the timing is in doubt, if the Bible is not explicit, why is it then that we have such a strong opinion on this? Why is it that we do believe very strongly in a pre-tribulation rapture idea? Well, the reason is because of the other doctrines that undergird the faith. Because there are deeper doctrines which are clear, which if the pre-tribulation rapture is not the proper timing, are muddied, perhaps compromised, and cause a general Lack of clarity as it relates to doctrines that ought to be quite clear. And this is where the conflict really lies. To whatever degree I stray from a pre-tribulation rapture position, to that degree I muddy the waters of the purpose of the 70th week of Daniel. I confuse the proper relationship between God and Israel and God and the church and the church and Israel. And so as we go through these elements of the rapture and we talk about timing, the foundation, the, the arguments, most of which have already been laid. I've already laid the argument of dispensationalism. I've already laid the argument 
of the, the relationship between the church and Israel. I've already spoken of Daniel's 70 weeks, and we're just going to take various teachings on the rapture over this week and next week, and we're going to apply them to these deeper doctrines and draw out of them a conclusion. And if we take the deeper doctrines of the faith and we draw our, the, the teachings of the rapture from them, there really is only one reasonable conclusion, and that's a pre-tribulational idea. So last time we were together, we spoke in 1 Thessalonians 4, and I encouraged you to go there if you have your Bibles with you this morning. And we're going to read a passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 13. We'll read through chapter 5, verse 11, so it's a little bit of a chunk, and the Bible says this, But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus God will bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent come before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We read that last week. We talked about that last week, that there would be this catching away, and this establishes the reality of the rapture, right? The reality that, that God's people will be caught up, the reality that a rapture is going to take place, and then also the reality, as we mentioned last week, that to Paul, these were words of comfort, not words of warning. These were words of building up, not um, causing them to be concerned. We continue then in, in chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So he says, you don't need that I write unto you because you know that the Lord's coming as a thief. You, you might ask me, when is the rapture going to happen? And I'm going to say to you, I don't know. Uh, that, that's Paul's answer here because nobody knows the timing of the rapture. Nobody knows the day nor the hour. In fact, what we know is that there will be general peace and safety and then sudden destruction will come upon them. I gave the illustration last week uh, because it was somewhat appropriate, my wife having just had uh, our second son, and that idea of a pregnant woman, right? There are pre-contraction pains, those sorts of things, but it is not, but, but when labor begins, that's when things start setting in motion, bringing about then eventually the child. So my wife wakes me up and she says, I'm in labor. And then we begin going about to get the process going of having this child. Everything leading up to that, it was obvious it was going to happen, right? Then my wife's belly was getting bigger and, and baby was, was kicking and you knew that baby was coming. But it wasn't until that moment when all of a sudden I'm in labor that could happen at any moment, right? And then from that point on, there's a set timetable leading to the birth of a child. Paul says a similar idea here, that the Lord will come as a thief in the night, that there's going to come a moment. And notice how he's connecting the thief in the, moment, uh, the, thief in the night to the rapture in this passage. Going from 1 Thessalonians 4 right into 1 Thessalonians 5, he's connecting the thief in the night concept to the rapture concept. When are these things going to happen? Paul says, I can't tell you that because he's coming as a thief in the night, but notice how it is within the context of the rapture, right? 
which lends us to the idea that the rapture is the next thing on the timetable, that there won't be signs and wonders leading up to the rapture, because if there are signs and wonders leading up to the rapture, if the man of sin is revealed halfway through the tribulation, then I have a timetable. That would have to be the thief in the night moment. But that's not the thief in the night moment. The thief in the night moment, as Paul expresses it, is the catching away. The catching away of the church. But then he says in verse 4, as we continue, he says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. So, though it will overtake the world as a thief, you will be ready for it, because you're the brethren. Well, once again, this lends itself to the idea that the thief in the night moment, that, that the, the moment that will be sudden will be the rapture. That it will, there will be peace and safety until the rapture. Well, if you've read anything about the 70th week of Daniel, if you read in Revelation about the seals or the trumpets or the vials, there's not going to be a lot of peace and safety in that time. So if there is indeed peace and safety in this time, and then sudden destruction that comes upon them once again, it lends itself to the idea that the rapture initiating the destruction, the rapture initiating the 70th week of Daniel. So Paul says in verse 5, Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and of love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God, verse 9, hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And here, verse 9, we see this concept that God has not appointed us unto wrath. So what do we know? What do we know from this passage of Scripture about the essence of the rapture? We know, number one, that, that, that God has not appointed us to wrath, so he will call us out of his wrath. Number two, we know that the Lord is coming as a thief in the night, and prior to that thief in the night coming, there will be cries of peace and safety. Number three, we see all of this connected to the rapture and Paul's answer as it relates to the times and the seasons, as it relates to his, the, the, his comment on the timing of the rapture, right? So, chapter four, the rapture will happen. Comfort yourselves that the rapture will happen and that the dead in Christ will rise first. Chapter 5, when is this going to happen? Of the times and the seasons. You don't need me to write unto you about that because nobody knows, but this we know. He's coming as a thief in the night. But this we know, that it will be peace and safety prior to its coming. But this we know, that you will not be overtaken in that moment as a thief would overtake because you're prepared. Because you're in Christ. All of this lends itself to the idea that the rapture will initiate the times of trial. That the rapture will initiate. That the rapture will be that moment. That imminency moment. Now, as we consider this, Paul begins speaking of the day of the Lord. 
The day of the Lord, so cometh as a thief in the night, verse 2. And this concept of the day of the Lord is very, very important. In fact, a, a great amount of the debate surrounding at least the pre-millennial viewpoints, pre-trib and mid-trib and pre-wrath and post-trib, all of these really revolve around just a couple of topics. Number one is imminence. Number two is when is the day of the Lord and what is the day of the Lord? And that's a really important question. We're going to seek to address that question today throughout our time together. What is the day of the Lord and how should we interpret the day of the Lord? See, Paul calls us within chapter 5 to comfort ourselves with these words. That the day of the Lord would not come upon us as it comes upon others as a thief in the night. If the church were going to certainly be a part of the day of the Lord events, there would be no comfort in it. And so we know that the church will be called out before the day of the Lord begins. The question simply is, then, when does the day of the Lord begin? Well, as we continue this study, I would like us to flip over to 2 Thessalonians. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, just a couple of verses here. Verses 1 through 3 of 2 Thessalonians 2, the Bible says this, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not, so, so, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. So we have here a statement that the day of the Lord will not come until such time as the man of sin is revealed and there be a falling away. We read a similar concept in Joel 2. You don't have to turn there. But in Joel 2, verses 30 and 31, the Bible says, And I will show wonders... In the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So here we find a statement that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, certain signs and wonders have to happen. And this is where things get a little tricky because when we talk about the revelation of the man of sin, generally speaking, we would put the revelation of the man of sin in one of two places. Some might put it at the very beginning of the of the 70th week of Daniel because we know that at the beginning of the 70th week the man of sin who is Antichrist will, will form a covenant with Israel, right? A seven year covenant with Israel. However, when we look in Scripture, the most logical and obvious revelation of the man of sin is at the abomination of desolation. Halfway through, at the midpoint of the, of the tribulation, when he places himself on the throne, he, he, he uh, desolates the temple and he begins to persecute the nation of Israel. And as we compare that with Joel, the Bible says that these wonders that will happen before the day of the Lord, uh, these wonders are generally what we see in the sixth seal. In Revelation chapter 6, the opening of the sixth seal. And at the opening of the sixth seal, we see these particular wonders uh, in the heavens and in the earth. Blood, fire, pillars of smoke. Uh, some of those are, are, are initiated there and then continue on from there. But there's something else very important to understand about the day of the Lord. Is that though the event of the day of the Lord proper is most certainly His second coming, His return... 
that because the Bible also says that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, somehow we have to reconcile the fact that there are all of these signs and wonders before the day of the Lord with the fact that no one's going to know that the day of the Lord is coming and there is peace and safety, right? And this is why we, again, fall back upon this pre-tribulational idea. That just because certain events take place prior to the day of the Lord does not mean that, that the church has to go through those events. And it does not mean in any way that the, the rapture cannot take place until the initiation of the day of the Lord proper. If the whole of the signs and the wonders of the 70th week of Daniel are contained within that 70th week, if the church will see the seven-year covenant with Israel, if the church will see Antichrist sit on the throne on the three-and-a-half-year mark, the day, in the, Lord, the day of the Lord is not imminent. It begins with many signs and wonders first having come to pass. And because imminency is so clear in the Scripture, we really have to find a way to reconcile the imminency of the day of the Lord with the signs and the wonders that take place before the day of the Lord. And this is one of the reasons why we hold the perspective we do. So think of the day of the Lord. There's an event where Jesus is going to return. The Bible says that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, there will be signs and wonders in the heavens. There will be a revelation of the man of sin. We see from 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and chapter 5 that the church will be called out before the day of the Lord. So we recognize that the day of the Lord, that, 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 that the church must leave before. The question then becomes, when does the day of the Lord begin? And how can the day of the Lord, if it's an event toward the end of the tribulation, be imminent if there are signs and wonders that precede it. This is the tension. This is what we struggle with. This is why there's debate. Do I put more of my effort into the fact that I believe the day of the Lord to be something right at the end of the tribulation and that the church has to come up to the day of the Lord? And that the rapture will initiate the day of the Lord? And I just ignore imminence? Or do I put more loyalty upon imminence and strike some sort of compromise as it relates to the day of the Lord? Well, we shouldn't have to choose, Pastor. Well, we kind of do. And this is why last week when we established the rapture and imminence, I told you these are doctrines that are taught so clearly. We know the rapture is going to take place, and we know that it's imminent. And so at Legacy Baptist Church, we choose to put our loyalty upon imminence. Well, pastor, then you have a contradiction as it relates to the day of the Lord. Not necessarily. When we talk about the day of the Lord, most certainly, in many places, when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, it's speaking of His second coming. When the Lord will return and, and He will destroy His enemies. But there's also evidence within the scriptures that the day of the Lord doesn't just speak of his second coming proper, but it speaks of all of the events surrounding his second coming from the beginning of the 70th week, in fact, all the way till after the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. 
Consider Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 13. You can listen to it or certainly turn there if you'd like. In Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 6, the Bible says this, How will ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. So, so the, the warning is that the day of the Lord is at hand. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in, a, in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in its going forth. The moon shall not cause their light to shine. I will punish the world for their evil and their wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the gold wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. We have within this statement elements that say the day of the Lord is this. But the things that are described there are, are signs and wonders which take place throughout the scope of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Certainly not just at the end, but all throughout the entire time. And so there's this idea that it seems as though Isaiah regarded the day of the Lord as all of the events come leading up to his coming. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter says this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, we've covered that, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, the earth also... And the works that are therein shall be burned up. So Peter says that the day of the Lord will comprise a time when the earth will be melted and the heavens will be will, will pass away. But when we read in the in the revelation of Jesus Christ, those events take place after the one thousand year reign of Christ, after the millennial kingdom. So if the day of the Lord is considered to be after the millennial kingdom. And the day of the Lord is also the events that take place earlier than the Lord's return in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then there's reason to believe that the day of the Lord is not just the, the day or the period surrounding Jesus' direct return, but the events leading up to his direct return and the events well after his return into the millennium and afterward. All considered biblically the day of the Lord. And if that's the case then there's no reason for us to have to muddy the waters of the teaching of the imminent return of Jesus Christ in order to say that the day of the Lord is initiated by the rapture. In order to say that the rapture takes place prior to the 70th week of Daniel. I hope this is making somewhat sense. I think the screen would have been helpful here as I had some visual aids for you. But uh, obviously the Lord knew different. But this concept... That when we speak of the day, perhaps you're saying, well, pastor, now you're muddying the waters, you're stretching things a little bit. But I don't think I am. Not only do we consider the biblical precedent for the idea that the day of the Lord can be something beyond just the day itself, but we talk about these sorts of things all the time. If I were to go to a wedding, when I think of a wedding, I think of a bride and a groom saying, I do. Right? Right? Do you take her? Do you take him? Yes, yes, bows, I do. Okay, that's the actual wedding, right? That's, that, that's the wedding part. And if you've ever noticed, the wedding part of a wedding is actually quite short. 
However, there's a great deal more that happens at a wedding than just do you, do you, I do, and we're done, right? There's the music, and there's the processional, and the recessional, and all of the things surrounding it to where a, a very short ceremony can actually be very, very long. Now, the wedding proper is the I do's. The wedding event is significantly longer than that. The wedding event uh, can comprise pre, post, maybe the reception, all of it. So if somebody asked you, where were you today? You aren't going to say, well, I was at the recessional and the processional and the music and the wedding and the reception. You're going to say, I was at so-and-so's wedding, right? Because it is one event, though it actually has many things involved. It seems as though that's how the, the, the Bible considers the day of the Lord. There is a return proper called the day of the Lord when Jesus actually physically will return and his feet will touch the Mount of Olives and he will destroy his enemies. But it seems as though in the scriptures that the day of the Lord also speaks of all of the events surrounding it in the same way that a wedding speaks of all of the events surrounding the wedding proper. So that when the Bible says the day of the Lord, it's not intending to be explicit and specific about the actual moment that Jesus Christ returns all the time, although it might, but it might also be speaking of the events leading up to it, that part where the woman is in travail, right? And the events after it, the cleanup work, the wrap-up work from his second coming. And if we perceive the second coming this way, the day of the Lord this way, if we allow the day of the Lord to not just be an event, but to be a time period, then there's absolutely no problem with us interpreting the day of the Lord passages and simultaneously uh, respecting the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, respecting the difference between the church and Israel, respecting the fact that within the scope of Daniel's 70 weeks, the church is simply not there. It's not mentioned. Respecting the fact that within the teachings of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the church is never seen. The church is never mentioned. And all of this goes back to what we taught in those three months beginning in January. That if the day of the Lord is established, and we can, interpretively, without doing damage to the text, if we can say, that the day of the Lord is interpretively valid to be a period of time beginning, initiating with the 70th week of Daniel and going through the millennium, then every other doctrinal distinctive that we have drawn out of the text lends itself to the idea that the church will be taken out prior to these events taking place, prior to the suffering, prior to the wrath, prior to the persecution, prior to these things. This is why we spent time talking about the distinctions between the, the church and Israel. This is why we spent so much time on the important foundational doctrines of the text. Because a good interpreter takes that which is most clear and uses what is most clear to interpret what is least clear. A good interpreter wraps the ambiguous parts of doctrine around the clear parts of doctrine, not the other way around. And unfortunately, what we often do in the church... Uh, in, in our own Bible reading and such, is that we take the unclear parts and we say, well, this seems to make the most sense, and then, but it doesn't make sense with this doctrine, so we start to change this doctrine to make it fit our unclear understanding of this doctrine. And we end up spiritualizing things, and we end up uh, making things um, uh, uh, similes and metaphors that don't need to be similes and metaphors. 
and we turn it all on its head. If we say imminency can't be true because of our understanding of the rapture of the church, we've turned it all on its head because the teaching of imminency is very clear in the scriptures and the teaching on the rapture is very ambiguous. So because we know that imminency is clear, I mean the timing of the rapture, by the way. The rapture is clear. The timing of the rapture is ambiguous. If imminency is clear, and if our understanding of the church in Israel is clear, then we take the doctrine of the timing of the rapture and we plug it into the clear doctrines. We bring clarity to the rapture by adding it to the clarity of the other doctrines that are already established. We use the clear to set the boundaries for the ambiguous. I hope that makes sense. And so we've talked about this doctrinal distinctive. We've talked about the day of the Lord. We've talked about the imminence of the Lord and how important that is. The one that we haven't talked about yet is the importance of the church and Israel. One of the things that is uh, lost most quickly when the waters are muddied of a pre-tribulation rapture theory is the understanding that God still has a plan for his people, the importance of Israel as it relates to end times events. That God has a plan for his people beyond, uh, and, and the, the, the whole teaching of that, of course, is beyond the scope of the time that we have together today. We'll hit it several times in our Jeremiah series in the evenings. We'll consider it in a number of ways as we continue through the revelation of Jesus Christ, talking about the sealing of the 144,000 and the two witnesses and all of these things that are so distinctly Jewish in nature. But as we understand the scriptures, the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are everlasting. God says in Romans chapter 11 through Paul, that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God has promised to Israel a kingdom. He has promised to rule over them. He has promised them the land of Canaan forever. He has promised them these things, and these things must surely come to pass. Daniel 9.24, God gives the boundaries of the, 70th, of the 70 weeks. What are those 70 weeks intended to accomplish? He says this, they are intended to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin. I hope you remember when I preached on this. To make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. This is what God intends to do within the 70 weeks. God is going to use this time to fulfill those promises given to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that he will remove Israel's iniquities. He will cause them, he will remember their sin no more. He'll give them a new heart. He'll circumcise their heart, as he says, that all of them would know him. So as Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel shall be saved. Not every Jew from every generation, but that generation will be saved. Beyond fulfilling the promises of God to the nation of Israel, we find that God also has to finish transgressions and make an end of sins. This actually does not happen at the end of the 70th week proper, but it ends with the day of the Lord, right after the millennial kingdom. To judge a sinful world, to call Israel back to himself. These are the purposes of the 70th week of Daniel. The question then becomes, 
What part does the church play in the 70th week if it's there? If God has anointed His 144,000 out of Israel to be the evangelists, if God has His two witnesses going throughout the world, if God has an angel preaching the everlasting gospel, all things which we'll see in the book of the Revelation, if God has appointed all of these divinely uh, empowered resources to spreading the gospel, what part does the church play? If God has established the 70th week of Daniel in order to judge the world, what part does the church have in the world being judged? If God has appointed the 70th week of Daniel in order to chasten Israel back to himself because Israel is walking in rebellion, the church doesn't have to be chastened to God. The church already stands before God holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So what purpose do we play? Jesus bore our judgment on the cross. We don't need to be judged. Jesus took our chastening. We don't need to be chastised by the Lord. If the church began after the 69th week, if we don't bear any purpose within the tribulation, if in Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he says, what about the times and the seasons of when the Lord will return to, to claim His own, Paul speaks about the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night, highlighting imminence that this is something that's going to come when there's peace and safety and no man knows the day or the hour, but it will not overtake the church as a thief. All of these things lend themselves to this conviction that the Lord will remove His church prior to the 70th week beginning. If the church will be raptured, and it will, if the day of the Lord is imminent, and it is, if God's plan with Israel isn't done and His plan with Israel is not done, then a pre-tribulational rapture fulfills all of these deeper doctrines better than any other and in many ways becomes the only viable option that meets every doctrinal necessity. Presuming, of course, we agree with the doctrinal presuppositions that I laid out in the first three months of our series. And this is really where the disagreements on the rapture lie. They lie with those who do not agree with the distinctions between the church and Israel, or those that do not agree with the importance of the doctrine of imminence, or those who perhaps are comfortable with those doctrines, but are also comfortable with the ambiguity that is lent to these doctrines by their perspective. I have yet to find any theory of the rapture and end times which is completely airtight because God has simply not given us enough information to do so. But there is no doubt in my mind that a pre-tribulation rapture of the saints, of the church of God, hits all of the marks of the doctrinal, the important doctrinal distinctions that we hold much more dearly than just the doctrine of the end times without compromising any of them. And so it's kind of like this. Have you ever had one of those puzzles where you're doing the puzzle and you see a piece and you've kind of, you've looked at the piece and you've looked at the, the puzzle that needs to be done and you've said a couple of times, no, no, that one doesn't really fit and so you try some other ones and at the end, you, you actually, you kind of get to the point where the one that you stick in there, it ends up fitting even though you didn't think it would fit just because of, you tried everything else and everything else didn't work so you try that one and that one ends up fitting. 
as it pertains to the pre-tribulation rapture, we see these glimmers. We see that God has not appointed us under wrath. We see the doctrine, uh, we see imminence, and we see all of these things. And at the end of the day, as we take all of the different theories of, of the rapture and we place them all out, nothing else fits the doctrines of the faith but a pre-tribulation rapture position. Nothing else sustains the core doctrines of the, the separation between church and Israel, imminent, uh, imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the character of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Nothing else fits those distinctions as well as the pre-tribulation rapture position does. Add to that all of these other things that we've talked about. Add to that the fact that Paul's words in First and Second Thessalonians were words of comfort, not words of warning. And it simply makes the most sense. With all this in mind, let me give you a, a concise rundown of this. And then I'll answer a couple of common concerns. We believe God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. And that the 490 years of His plan are presented in Daniel 9. The first 480 years of that plan ended with the death of Messiah, putting that plan on pause because Israel rejected her Messiah. And that the final seven years of this plan to be realized in the final seven years of what we often call the tribulation are intended to finalize God's plan with Israel. That the day of the Lord is a time period beginning with the initiation of God's plan at the rapture of the church where he removes the church from the world right before the 70th week as he brought the church into the world after the 69th week and that the day of the Lord will extend throughout the, uh, until the end of the millennial kingdom. We believe the purpose of the 70th week in consistency with Daniel 9 is to judge the unbelieving world and to chasten Israel back to himself. To this end, we see no purpose for the church in the 70th week. We see no prophecy which places the church in that time either. We believe that the day of the Lord is imminent, meaning that since the ascension of our Lord into heaven following his resurrection, God's return could be at any moment, and God's people have been called to live in that anticipation. We believe that God has promised to spare his church from the wrath that is to come, a wrath which no doubt exists throughout the time of the 70th week of Daniel. We believe the message of the rapture in the New Testament as a message of hope and comfort, not a message of warning and tribulation. While Jesus and the apostles most certainly promised that the church would experience suffering and tribulation in this life, we do not find one passage of Scripture which would clearly express a warning that the church will be asked to endure the terrors of the 70th week of Daniel. To this end, we err on the side of clarity as it relates to the doctrine that we do understand, the doctrine of imminence, the distinctives between the church and Israel. And we state that the most reasonable and consistent time for the Lord to rapture His church is prior to the reinitiation of His plan with Israel and the judgment of the unbelieving world. Now with this in mind, I have three objections that I'd like to, to cover. And then next week as we talk about these other issues, we'll, we'll cover some other things. Objection number one, the Bible does not speak of two phases to the second coming. Some will say, you, you say that there's, you must, you must mean that there are two second comings, Pastor. If Jesus comes, meets, meets his church in the air, and then he comes again later, then there's two second comings. The Bible didn't talk about two second comings. Well, no. Just as we say the day of the Lord is an event, so too we would say the second coming is an event initiated with the rapture, completed when Jesus' feet touch the Mount of Olives. This is not uncommon in the scriptures to see this sort of a perspective. 
The Bible didn't explicitly speak of two advents of Messiah either, did it? All throughout the Old Testament, when you read about Messiah's return, it sounds like he's returning once. But in fact, he returns twice. So all throughout the scripture, for it to speak of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and for us to see within that second coming, one time where he descends into the air and he raptures his church, and then a second time where he actually comes all the way and his feet touch the Mount of Olives is not an inconsistency. A second question. What about the last trump? Remember last week when we were talking in 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul said that these events, that the rapture would take place at the last trump? Well, this becomes a problem, right? Because all throughout the book of the Revelation we find trumpets. The final trump recorded in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is the seventh trumpet judgment which initiates the vials. The, uh, depending on who you talk to and how you interpret the scriptures, Jesus speaks of a trumpet at his return proper in Matthew 24. To that end, most people that study the scriptures and look only for the very final trumpet that's, that's spoken of in the scriptures will put, his, put the rapture at, at the second coming proper. They'll become pro- post-tribulational. However, when we understand this idea of the last trump, we recognize that we are assuming if you go look for the very last trumpet that sounds in the Bible, we are assuming that the last trump is speaking of last in time. And certainly, when it comes to this word, that's not necessary. Even if it does mean last in time. Last in time in relation to what? Last, last, last ever, or last within a set period of time? Let let me tell you what I mean by that. If I told you that you are dismissed after the last song, do I mean like the last song ever? Like you're not dismissed until Legacy's ready to close his doors and we sing our last song? Well, no, you wouldn't think that, right? Does it mean the last song of the day? Because that means that you're, you have to sit here until this evening at about, what, 7.30, 7.35 when we sing our last song? And then you're dismissed before I preach? Is that what I mean this morning if I say you're dismissed at the last song? Well, no. Context says when I say you're dismissed at the last song that there's a set period of time that we're speaking of, right? And that set period of time that we're speaking of is the time that is in relation to our meeting this morning. And if I say you're dismissed at the last song, then when we sing our last song this morning, you get up and you go home. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the rapture will take place at the last trump, last in relation to what? Last in relation to what? The very last trumpet ever? There will be no trumpets in the millennium? There will be no trumpets in New Jerusalem? If so, then we're not going to be raptured until after that? The last trumpet of the, of the tribulation? Or perhaps the last trumpet of our age? We don't know what Paul is speaking of when he speaks explicitly of the last trump. And I'm not attempting to split hairs here. I'm saying that the language is not as cut and dry as last having to mean the very last trumpet that the Bible speaks about. What if the last of the last trumpets is the final trumpet in time as it relates to the the church age? What if the last trump is actually not the final trump as in relation to time, but the trumpet that initiates the last things? What if that's the last trump? What if it is the trumpet that sounds so that the last days are initiated? What if it's a trumpet that initiates the 70th week? I believe these are all valid interpretations. If we take the the meaning of the word last, 
as it is found in the Greek text, and we draw it out. To this end, the idea of the last trump could just as easily mean that this is a trump that sounds forth the initiation of the last days or the final trump as it relates to the period of time known as the church age, maybe even the time of the Gentiles, depending on when we decide that is. And I hope you're struck thus by the idea that, and no, no pun intended here, as it relates to the rapture, there is no trump card. There is nothing where you set it down and say, see, this proves everything. We are piecing together doctrinal bits to come to a consistency of interpretation. And within a premillennial dispensational perspective of the word of God that sees the distinctions between the church and Israel that recognizes the importance of imminence to the teaching of the word of God a pre-tribulational rapture theory checks every box and it's the only theory that checks every box only one theory maintains uncompromised understanding of the very clear doctrine of imminence only one theory maintains an uncompromised understanding of the role of the national of the nation of Israel in the last days only one theory maintains an uncompromised understanding of the nature of the church and its standing with Christ and that is a pre-tribulational rapture final objection for today and then I'll get you out of here when does God's wrath truly begin we are not appointed under wrath. Revelation 3.10 promises the church of Philadelphia that the faithful would be spared from the hour of temptation. To this end, God will spare the church from His wrath. We know that. But the question is, when does His wrath begin? Indeed, we do not see the word come up in the revelation of Jesus Christ until the opening of the sixth seal in Revelation 6. So does this mean that everything before that sixth seal is not God's wrath? It's argued that the character of the first six seals is, or first five seals is far more the wrath of man than the wrath of God. But there are major problems with this idea. First, we cannot say that man's actions never reflect the judgment of the wrath of God. If we could, how could we explain Babylon being used to bring the nation of Israel into captivity or Egypt or Syria or any of the other nations that were used in God's wrath to judge the nation of Israel in the past? Second, we see that the events of the Five seals leading up to the sixth seal are initiated by Jesus Christ himself. Third, and most simply, there are things over which within those five seals that man has no control. Famine, animals destroying people. There are those that would argue that the wrath of God comes at a later point in the tribulation. We'll talk about it. It's called the pre-wrath rapture theory. And as we talk about it next week, what we'll find is that once again, the theory has lots of merit, but it, it's not cut and dry, and what it does serve to do is muddy the distinctives of all of the foundational doctrines that we've talked about today, and that we've talked about for the last several months. And so, at Legacy Baptist Church, we hold to the conviction that the church will be taken out of the world, raptured out of the world, prior to the events of the 70th week of Daniel. We believe this theory 
most closely and consistently conforms to all of the teachings of God's word as it relates to God's character, God's love for his church, the character of the church, the beginning of the church, the end of the church, the nature of God's relationship to the, nature, to the national Israel, the promises of God to the nation of Israel yet to be fulfilled, the statements of the scriptures in relation to the rapture, the doctrine of imminence which is taught throughout the word of God, the nature of prophecy and of the day of the Lord. And to this end, while we cannot say that the teaching is itself unambiguous, the amount of evidence lending itself to a pre-tribulation rapture idea is weighty, to be sure. When we put it all together, what we find is this. God loves his church. God will rapture his church. He will remove his church from this world prior to judgment. This is important for us to understand. That the teaching of the rapture is a teaching of hope, of comfort. And that's what it needs to be to us. Next week we'll go through some of the dissension and all of these things and we'll talk through more, more of that. But my hope and my desire when we get to the end of this is not that you have ammunition with which to go to someone that disagrees with you and to put them down. My hope at the end of this is that we will all have a higher appreciation for something very important, and that is this. That God has a plan, that we are a part of that plan, that God will win, that Christ's church will be victorious, And that one day as we stand in heaven, not one of us will be able to look back with anything other than complete understanding contentment that what God, what God did is what is best. And we'll rejoice in the wisdom and, and, and the power of God. And I hope that that's what it can become. That if you do have those that are contentious about this issue, that uh, you can talk about the evidence and you can talk about why you believe what you believe. And I think all of that is good because iron sharpens iron. But leave that conversation reminding one another that God wins, that the church is victorious, that the Lord loves his own. And I pray that that will lead you to a renewed determination to follow him in truth and in love. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.